Chapter Thirty Two of the Financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The necessity for a final conference between Butler, Mollenhauer, and Simpson was speedily reached, for this situation was hourly growing more serious. Rumors were floating about in Third Street that, in addition to having failed for so large an amount as to have further unsettled the already panicky financial situation induced by the Chicago fire, Cowperwood and Stenner, or Stenner working with Cowperwood, or the other way round, had involved the city treasury to the extent of $500,000, and the question was how was the matter to be kept quiet until after election, which was still three weeks away. Bankers and brokers were communicating odd rumors to each other about a check that had been taken from the city treasury after Cowperwood knew he was to fail, and without Stenner's consent. Also that there was a danger that it would come to the ears of that very uncomfortable political organization known as the Citizens' Municipal Reform Association, of which a well-known iron manufacturer of great probity and moral rectitude, one Skelton C. Wheat, was president. Wheat had for years been following on the trail of the dominant Republican administration in a vain attempt to bring it to a sense of some of its political iniquities. He was a serious and austere man, one of those solemn, self-righteous souls who see life through a peculiar veil of duty, and who, undisturbed by notable animal passions of any kind, go their way of upholding the theory of the Ten Commandments over the order of things as they are. The committee in question had originally been organized to protest against some abuses in the tax department, but since then, from election to election, it had been drifting from one subject to another, finding an occasional evidence of its worthwhileness in some newspaper comment and the frightened reformation of some minor political official who ended, usually, by taking refuge behind the skirts of some higher political power in the last reaches, Messrs. Butler, Mullenhauer, and Simpson. Just now, it was without important fuel or ammunition, and this assignment of Cowperwood, with his attendant crime, so far as the city treasury was concerned, threatened, as some politicians and bankers sought, to give it just the club it was looking for. However, the decisive conference took place between Cowperwood and the reigning political powers some five days after Cowperwood's failure, at the home of Senator Simpson, which was located in Rittenhouse Square, a region central for the older order of wealth in Philadelphia. Simpson was a man of no little refinement artistically, of Quaker extraction, and of great wealth-breeding judgment, which he used largely to satisfy his craving for political predominance. He was most liberal, where money would bring him a powerful or necessary political adherent. He fairly showered offices, commissionerships, trusteeships, judgeships, political nominations, and executive positions, generally, on those who did his bidding faithfully and without question. Compared with Butler and Mullenhauer, he was more powerful than either, for he represented the state and the nation. When political authorities who were trying to swing a national election 
were anxious to discover what the state of Pennsylvania would do, so far as the Republican Party was concerned, it was to Senator Simpson that they appealed. In the literal sense of the word, he knew. The senator had long since graduated from state to national politics and was an interesting figure in the United States Senate at Washington, where his voice in all the conservative and moneyed council of the nation was of great weight. The house that he occupied, of Venetian design and four stories in height, bore many architectural marks of distinction, such as the floriated window, the door with a semi-pointed arch, and medallions of colored marble set in the walls. The senator was a great admirer of Venice. He had been there often, as he had to Athens and Rome, and had brought back many artistic objects, representative of the civilizations and refinements of older days. He was fond, for one thing, of the stern, sculptured heads of the Roman emperors, and the fragments of gods and goddesses, which are the best testimony of the artistic aspirations of Greece. In the entresol of this house was one of his finest treasures, a carved and floriated base, bearing a tapering monolith some four feet high, crowned by the head of a peculiarly goatish pan, by the side of which were the problematic remains of a lovely nude nymph, just the little feet broken off at the ankles. The base on which the feet of the nymph and the monolith stood was ornamented with carved ox skulls intertwined with roses. In his reception hall were replicas of Caligula, Nero, and other Roman emperors, and on his stair walls reliefs of dancing nymphs in procession and priests bearing offerings of sheep and swine to the sacrificial altars. There was a clock in some corner of the house which chimed the quarter, the half, the three-quarters, and the hour in strange, euphonious, and pathetic notes. On the walls of the rooms were tapestries of Flemish origin, and in the reception hall, the library, the living room, and the drawing room, richly carved furniture after the standards of the Italian Renaissance. The senator's taste in the matter of paintings was inadequate, and he mistrusted it, but such as he had were of distinguished origin and authentic. He cared more for his curio cases, filled with smaller imported bronzes, Venetian glass, and Chinese jade. He was not a collector of these in any notable sense, merely a lover of a few choice examples. Handsome tiger and leopard-skin rugs, the fur of a musk-ox for his divan, and tanned and brown-stained goat and kid skins for his tables, gave a sense of elegance and reserved profusion. In addition, the senator had a dining-room done after the Jacobean idea of artistic excellence, and a wine-cellar which the best of the local vintners looked after with extreme care. He was a man who loved to entertain lavishly, and when his residence was thrown open for a dinner, a reception, or a ball, the best of local society was to be found there. The conference was in the senator's library, and he received his colleagues with the genial air of one who has much to gain and little to lose. There were whiskies, wines, cigars on the table, and while Mollenhauer and Simpson exchanged the commonplaces of the day awaiting the arrival of Butler, 
they lighted cigars and kept their inmost thoughts to themselves. It so happened that on the previous afternoon, Butler had learned from Mr. David Petty, the district attorney, of the $60,000 check transaction. At the same time, the matter had been brought to Mullenhauer's attention by Stenner himself. It was Mullenhauer, not Butler, who saw that by taking advantage of Cowperwood's situation, he might save the local party from blame, and at the same time, most likely fleece Cowperwood out of his street railway shares without letting Butler or Simpson know anything about it. The thing to do was to terrorize him with a private threat of prosecution. Butler was not long in arriving, and apologized for the delay. Concealing his recent grief behind as jaunty an air as possible, he began with, "'It's a lively life I'm leading, what with every bank in the city wanting to know how their loans are going to be taken care of.' He took a cigar and struck a match. "'It does look a little threatening,' said Senator Simpson, smiling. "'Sit down.' I've just been talking with Avery Stone of J. Cook & Company, and he tells me that the talk in Third Street about Stenner's connection with this Cowperwood failure is growing very strong, and that the newspapers are bound to take up the matter shortly, unless something is done about it. I am sure that the news will also reach Mr. Wheat of the Citizens Reform Association very shortly. We ought to decide now, gentlemen, what we propose to do. One thing I am sure is to eliminate Stenner from the ticket as quietly as possible. This really looks to me as if it might become a very serious issue, and we ought to be doing what we can now to offset its effect later. Mullenhauer pulled a long breath through his cigar and blew it out in a rolling steel-blue cloud. He studied the tapestry on the opposite wall, but said nothing. "'There's one thing sure,' continued Senator Simpson, after a time, seeing that no one else spoke, and that is, if we do not begin a prosecution on our own account within a reasonable time, someone else is apt to, and that would put rather a bad face on the matter. My own opinion would be that we wait until it is very plain that prosecution is going to be undertaken by someone else, possibly the Municipal Reform Association.' but that we stand ready to step in and act in such a way as to make it look as though we had been planning to do it all the time. The thing to do is to gain time, and so I would suggest that it be made as difficult as possible to get at the treasurer's books. An investigation there, if it begins at all, as I think is very likely, should be very slow in producing the facts. The senator was not at all for mincing words with his important conferees when it came to vital issues. He preferred, in his grandiloquent way, to call a spade a spade. "'Now that sounds like very good sense to me,' said Butler, sinking a little lower in his chair for comfort's sake, and concealing his true mood in regard to all this. "'The boys could easily make that investigation last three weeks, I should think. They're slow enough with everything else, if me memory doesn't fail me.' At the same time, he was cogitating as to how to inject the personality of Cowperwood and his speedy prosecution without appearing to be neglecting the general welfare of the local party too much. "'Yes, that isn't a bad idea,' said Mullenhauer solemnly, blowing a ring of smoke 
and thinking how to keep Cowperwood's special offense from coming up at this conference and until after he had seen him. We ought to map our program very carefully, continued Senator Simpson, so that if we are compelled to act, we can do so very quickly. I believe myself that this thing is certain to come to an issue within a week, if not sooner, and we have no time to lose. If my advice were followed now, I should have the mayor write the treasurer a letter asking for information, and the treasurer write the mayor his answer, and also have the mayor, with the authority of the common council, suspend the treasurer for the time being. I think we have the authority to do that, or at least take over his principal duties, but without for the time being, anyhow, making any of these transactions public, until we have to, of course. We ought to be ready with these letters to show to the newspapers at once, in case this action is forced upon us. I could have those letters prepared if you gentlemen have no objection, put in Mullenhauer, quietly but quickly. Well, that strikes me as sensible, said Butler easily. It's about the only thing we can do under the circumstances, unless we could find someone else to blame it on, and I have a suggestion to make in that direction. Maybe we're not as helpless as we might be, all things considered. There was a slight gleam of triumph in his eyes as he said this, at the same time that there was a slight shadow of disappointment in Mullenhauer's, so Butler knew, and probably Simpson too. "'Just what do you mean?' asked the senator, looking at Butler interestedly. He knew nothing of the $60,000 check transaction. He had not followed the local treasury dealings very closely, nor had he talked to either of his conferees since the original conference between them. There haven't been any outside parties mixed up with this, have there? His own shrewd political mind was working. No, I wouldn't call him an outside party exactly, Senator, went on Butler suavely. It's Cowperwood himself I'm thinking of. There's something that has come up since I saw you gentlemen last that makes me think that perhaps that young man isn't as innocent as he might be. It looks to me as though he was the ringleader in this business as though he had been leading Stenner on against his will. I've been looking into the matter on my own account. And as far as I can make out, this man Stenner isn't as much to blame as I thought. From all I can learn, Cowperwood has been threatening Stenner with one thing and another if he didn't give him more money. And only the other day he got a big sum on false pretenses, which might make him equally guilty with Stenner. There's $60,000 of city loan certificates that have been paid for that aren't in the sinking fund. And since the reputation of the party's in danger this fall, I don't see that we need to have any particular consideration for him. He paused, strong in the conviction that he had sent a most dangerous arrow flying in the direction of Cowperwood, as indeed he had. Yet at this moment, both the senator and Mullenhauer were not a little surprised, seeing at their last meeting he had appeared rather friendly to the young banker, and this recent discovery seemed scarcely any occasion for a vicious attitude on his part. Mullenhauer, in particular, was surprised, for he had been looking on Butler's friendship for Cowperwood as a possible stumbling block. Hmm, you don't tell me, observed Senator Simpson thoughtfully, stroking his mouth with his pale hand. "'Yes, I can confirm that,' said Mullenhauer quietly, 
seeing his own little private plan of browbeating Cowperwood out of his street railway shares gone glimmering. I had a talk with Stenner the other day about this very matter, and he told me that Cowperwood had been trying to force him to give him $300,000 more, and that when he refused, Cowperwood managed to get $60,000 further without his knowledge or consent. "'How could he do that?' asked Senator Simpson incredulously. Mullenhauer explained the transaction. "'Oh,' said the Senator, when Mullenhauer had finished, "'that indicates a rather sharp person, doesn't it? "'And the certificates are not in the sinking fund, eh?' "'They're not,' chimed in Butler, with considerable enthusiasm. "'Well, I must say,' said Simpson, rather relieved in his manner, "'this looks like a rather good thing than not to me. "'A scapegoat, possibly.' We need something like this. I see no reason under the circumstances for trying to protect Mr. Cowperwood. We might as well try to make a point of that, if we have to. The newspapers might just as well talk loud about that as anything else. They are bound to talk, and if we give them the right angle, I think that the election might well come and go before the matter could be reasonably cleared up, even though Mr. Wheat does interfere. I will be glad to undertake to see... What can be done with the papers? Well, that being the case, said Butler, I don't see that there's so much more we can do now, but I do think it will be a mistake if Cowperwood isn't punished with the other one. He's equally guilty with Stenner, if not more so, and I, for one, want to see him get what he deserves. He belongs in the penitentiary, and that's where he'll go if I have my say. Both Mullenhauer and Simpson turned a reserved and inquiring eye on their usually genial associate. What could be the reason for his sudden determination to have Cowperwood punished? Cowperwood, as Mullenhauer and Simpson saw it, and as Butler would ordinarily have seen it, was well within his human, if not his strictly legal rights. They did not blame him half as much for trying to do what he had done as they blamed Stenner for letting him do it. But since Butler felt as he did, and there was an actual technical crime here, they were perfectly willing that the party should have the advantage of it, even if Cowperwood went to the penitentiary. "'You may be right,' said Senator Simpson cautiously. "'You might have those letters prepared, Henry, and if we have to bring any action at all against anybody before election, it would, perhaps, be advisable to bring it against Cowperwood. Include Stenner if you have to.' but not unless you have to. I leave it to you two, as I am compelled to start for Pittsburgh next Friday, but I know you will not overlook any point. The senator arose. His time was always valuable. Butler was highly gratified by what he had accomplished. He had succeeded in putting the triumvirate on record against Cowperwood as the first victim, in case of any public disturbance or demonstration against the party. All that was now necessary was for the disturbance to manifest itself, and, from what he could see of local conditions, it was not far off. There was now the matter of Cowperwood's disgruntled creditors to look into, and if by buying in these he should succeed in preventing the financier from resuming his business, he would have him in a very precarious condition indeed. It was a sad day for Cowperwood, Butler thought, the day he had first tried to lead Eileen astray, and the time was not far off when he could prove it to him. End of chapter 32